If you have your Bibles, you can join me in turning to Ephesians. And we will look at a few different passages in Ephesians, and we will also, Lord willing, come back to 1 Timothy. Title of the message this morning and this afternoon, same, is the church essential? How do you expect a pastor is going to answer that question? This morning we'll answer it yes. This afternoon we'll answer it no. I'm not a double-minded man, at least not in this. But you'll have to come back this afternoon to find out. All right. During the pandemic, or during whatever we want to call it three years ago, when we were first introduced to this concept of uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, some, some people may have heard of it before. There's multiple ones. But when, the, when we first started hearing about it and we were told that we needed to... Uh, not stretch the limits of our medical personnel, that we needed to kind of lay low for a little while and flatten the curve and, and all of those things. And, and this is not a political statement, but, but when we first heard that, there were discussions about what is essential and what is not essential. And certain businesses were labeled essential. Some were not. Some services were labeled as essential. Others were not. Medical services. I don't think anybody's going to disagree. We needed medical services. Gas stations. Kind of need that. Pharmacies. Grocery stores. Pharmacies. All, all of these types of things... Uh, we, we needed truck drivers to be delivering all of the equipment and so forth. And, and so there were a lot of things that probably all of us would agree, yeah, th those are essential. We have to have those. But when it comes to the church, and we ask the question, is the church essential? In some places, the answer was no. Not at this time. In fact... There were some states that said, you know, phase three, we might start to bring back hair salons and churches. And it's kind of odd for us to consider those being on the same page. So, what perspective are we going to take to answer the question? If we're looking at it from a political state, uh, standpoint, we might see it one way. If we're looking at it from a business perspective... We might see it a different way. If we're looking at it from the perspective of an unbeliever, could be a lot of responses. Sadly, even among those who claim to believe in Jesus Christ, the church is not seen as essential. To be clear, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about this building. And I'm not just talking about the times that we gather. I'm talking about the family of God. The body of Christ. 
Is it essential? And if it's essential, is it essential only once a week? Or is it essential always? The perspective that we should have is not our own, but that of God. What does God say about the church being essential or non-essential? And so we're going to look at a number of different passages. I will allude to many others. If you'd like my notes, I will forward them on to you. I've got several references here. But what I'd like us to see is that Christ chose his church. He died for his church. He defeated Satan for his church. He was resurrected for his church. He promised to build his church. He intercedes for his church. He's returning for his church. And if that doesn't tell us something about whether church is essential or not, we are not looking at things through God's perspective. We are only looking at them as consumers that are looking for a temporary thing rather than an eternal And God is calling us to see something that has eternal consequences, eternal ramifications, rather than being caught up in the here and now. And so, we are going to have to adjust our viewpoint to God's. We need to adjust our will to God's will. And so we are going to answer the question, as I said, is the church essential? Predictably, I'm going to answer it today, uh, this morning. Yes, the church is essential. First of all, the church is essential beyond this world, or you could say cosmically. The church is essential even beyond this world. Even beyond this world. I'm kind of going in a reverse funnel here, so we're we're going to start off broad and, and get pretty narrow, but the first point is that the church is essential beyond this world. You're in the book of Ephesians, and we're not going to read the whole section, but in chapter 6, Paul addresses this issue of spiritual warfare and he talks about the armor of God that we should put on and notice what he says in verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so Paul is identifying that the scope of our ministry and impact goes beyond just this present world, it goes to cosmic places. It deals with spiritual things, angels and demons. And this is not the first time Paul mentions that in Ephesians. If you go back to chapter 3, we see that the purpose of the church, Paul says, is primarily cosmic. It is it's outside of this world. So, chapter 3, let's read verses 9 through 11. Paul talks about, or, or Paul says, And to bring light for everyone, bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is telling us that the church has a cosmic purpose. That the main thing God has designed the church to do is to reveal his manifold wisdom outside of this world. To abbreviate, angels and demons. 
So when we think of the church being essential, we can't think in terms of gas, truck drivers, medical personnel. Right? Those do not impact angels and demons at all. We've got to see way beyond that. And Paul says that the purpose of the church eternally has been outside of this world. It has been to magnify the, the, the manifold wisdom of God to spiritual beings, to angels and demons. Well, what wisdom are angels and demons going to get from the church? How do they see God's wisdom here? Within the body of Westerville Bible Church, how do they see God's wisdom displayed? Well, if you read through all of Ephesians, you'll see that Paul has highlighted several things that God is doing in the church. In chapter 1, starting in verse 4, and also in chapter 5, verse 27, he highlights the fact that God desires for us to be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glorious grace. That is, it's God's grace that works in us to change us, to make us who were unholy and completely filled with blame to being blameless and holy. Not because we did it. But because he did it, because his grace does that work in our life to change us and to transform us according to his will, not ours. And so as he's doing that work, he's demonstrating his wisdom that, that, that overcomes man's frailty and man's uh, sin and decadence. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, he talks about uniting all things under Christ's authority, and that is to the praise of his glory. That he accomplishes peace and he accomplishes this through faith. He grants to us all that we need for life and godliness. That's what Peter says. But Paul says that's all we need to remove the hostility that was between Gentiles and Jews and between man and God. God, God eradicates all of that hostility through his grace. And he unites all things under Christ's authority. Everybody was rebelling. Everyone was seeking their own way. And here he's uniting the church under Christ's authority as part of the first fruits for all things. And all of this is giving glory to Christ. See that in Ephesians 1 6, 1 12, 1 14, 1 20 through 23, chapter 3, verse 21. He keeps coming back to this grace of God that accomplishes all of these things in our life. And he's doing this to show the immeasurable riches of his grace, chapter 2, verse 7. And here in in this section, in verse 10, he says that he's doing this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed to the angels and demons. And this is according to his eternal purpose. So, Satan obviously doesn't want to see that happen. That's why we're supposed to put on armor that is not for fighting against flesh and blood. Armor that protects us. Armor that allows us to take a stand. And why do we need to take a stand? It's so that we won't fall and so that we won't run. And God is equipping the church in order to do this, to take a stand against satanic forces in this world. Satanic forces that are outside of this world, that are seeking to demonstrate God is not wise. That God's grace is not sufficient. That, that everyone's going to go ahead and do their own way anyway. So God, you messed up, you failed. 
In chapter 2, he talks about the fact that believers used to be sons of disobedience, but they have been converted. They've, they've been brought out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he talks about the peace that, it, that exists now between Gentile and Jew. There was this clash, this hostility, Gentile versus Jew, and neither side was willing to submit. And here's God coming along and, and, and creating peace between those two. And uniting them and bringing them together into his body. How, how in the world is that going to work? These people have radically different agendas. Radically different uh, culture. Radically different ideas of what should be going on. And he says, but that's going to be unified underneath Christ. They're going to seek Christ's will, not their own. It's not a Jewish church. It's not a Gentile church. It's not an American church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And we submit ourselves under his authority. That shows God's wisdom. Because we could not have done that without the grace of God. To bring peace between God and man. That, that we were hostile towards God. And Romans 1 talks about the fact that we hate God. We, we not only deny him, we hate him. Which seems weird. There is no God, but I hate him. But that's what Romans 1 says. And, and all this hostility that we have against God, the, the rebellion that we have where we want to suppress the truth because of our sin, he's eradicated that. He highlights and elevates the fact that we are sinners so that he can forgive us of our sin and cleanse us and bring us into, a, into his body and make us holy and blameless. And that hostility between God and man is now erased because of Jesus Christ and his grace. And then in chapter 4, from verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9, we see over and over and over again how the church is unified and brought together to show love towards one another and kindness and gentleness and grace towards each other and how that impacts each of our personal relationships. Now, we've talked about this before, but, but again, if you read Ephesians 4 through 6, you're going to see time and time again how the gospel impacts our, our personal relationships with one another. And that is how God is showing his manifold wisdom to angels and demons. The church is pictured with several different pictures. Here's a few of them. We're pictured as a body. We're pictured as fellow citizens. We're pictured as a family or a household. We're pictured as a temple. We're pictured as a dwelling place. You look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. Paul says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Jesus, gave him as head over all things to the church or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ's body, literal human body, is up in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But we as the church are his body on the earth. He's the head. And we are to be his body, the fullness of him. So the grace that he shows to us, we show in this world. The love that he shows to us, we show in this world. The, the truth that he proclaims, we proclaim in this world. We are his body. We are the temple, the place of his worship, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. So it doesn't even have to be in this building. When we are gathered together with brothers and sisters in Christ and we are worshiping God, we are the temple. 
That's what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, what's interesting there is that word your is a plural pronoun. He's not saying your individual body is the temple. He's saying your, the big group, your singular body. Lots of people in one body. That's the church. The body, the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the fact that we are living stones in that temple. He he uses all of these pictures to highlight the fact that we are not supposed to be individuals. We're supposed to be together as a body. We're, We're part of this big, larger thing. And what we do is we represent Christ in this earth. So as the angels and demons look down at the church, they see an amazing family that was changed by the power of the gospel. It changes not only individuals, but it brings groups together that normally would not get along and would not be able to accomplish the same purpose. It unites us, or we are united under the banner of Christ. And in the midst of a strife-torn world, a world that gets divided by gender and race and class and political ideology, the church is a city set on a hill where people who once hated God and each other become God's children and members of the same family. And when the angels and demons are seeing that, they're recognizing this didn't happen because we were motivated by money or we were motivated by power, or we were motivated by any socioeconomic reason. It happens because of the wisdom of God accomplishing his purpose through Jesus Christ. Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. As one author put it, to be a member of a family is to belong to a community bound by a common fatherhood. To be a stone in his temple means to belong to a worshiping community. To be part of a body means belonging to a living, functioning, serving, witnessing community. All of these things are The the parts that we would say, well, that's what an individual Christian does. But his point is to say, no, that's what we do as a church. When Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men, they were not used to using a fishing pole. They were used to using a net. They worked together. And the point of this is that the discipleship and the church is meant to work and function together. Not as individuals. And so we have to surrender some of those things or all of those things that we were seeking before and not do our will do God's will why because the church is essential outside of this world the church is essential cosmically to to angels and to demons to view and see the manifold wisdom of God working something that we could not have accomplished without the power of God except by the grace of God this would not happen So, the church is essential outside of this world. The church is also essential inside this world. Narrowing down a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read this morning. I'm going to draw our attention. Verse 15, he says, If I delay, 
You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, in the family of God, which is the church of the living God. It's the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth, or a pillar and a support of the truth. So the church is essential in the world in one way, or in one sense, because we highlight the truth. We highlight the truth. Now, there's argument over what what Paul's trying to get at with the the concept of a pillar here. Um, They would have had a, a temple in Ephesus that was marked by 127 different pillars that had been donated by different kings. And so they've got this thing set up, and maybe he's saying, we are one of those pillars. Probably not, but that's, that's one option. I, I, tend to, I tend to agree with those who would say that what he's saying here is not that we are something that is holding up the truth, that if, if we fall, that the truth will be lost. Rather, what he's saying is, as you would see in a museum or a gallery, you would see something important lifted up off the ground on a pedestal or on a pillar to highlight and magnify and demonstrate and show and bring all attention to. That's what the church does with truth. We bring attention to the truth. We highlight it. We hold it up. We, we demonstrate to the world the truth of God's word and God's will. Just like a pillar in a museum might hold up something priceless, we are holding up something that is a rare commodity in our world today. Truth. The question of what is true in Scripture, a lot more prevalent today. Because truth is no longer an objective thing for most people. Maybe I shouldn't say most. For many people. It's a subjective thing. You can have your truth, and I can have my truth. And that's not what Paul says the church does. The church doesn't highlight its own truth. It highlights the truth. And we have to do it. Because the world does not have the truth apart from the church of Jesus Christ. Doesn't have the truth of the gospel. Doesn't have the truth about God. Doesn't have the truth about man. Doesn't have the truth about sin. Doesn't have truth about eternity. Doesn't have truth about what we really actually need. Doesn't have the truth about a lot of things. And so the pillar of truth, the the, the entity that's supposed to highlight and showcase and demonstrate to the world truth is the church. So if the church is gone, who highlights the truth? Who identifies truth? But we also reveal Christ in the flesh as his church. Just as Christ revealed God in the flesh by taking on a human form. And so I bring your attention again to verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. God took on flesh so that God could be seen. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. And this is the pattern that we can follow as the church. To manifest Christ in the flesh for the world to see. That we have been vindicated by the Spirit. That we are being watched by angels and demons who want to see, is God's wisdom really that great? We will proclaim Christ 
as his body among the nations so that he will be believed on in the world. And we know from Revelation that there will be people around Jesus' throne from every tribe and tongue and nation. Why? Because we proclaim the truth and we demonstrate the truth to the whole world. And just as Christ was taken up in glory, we also will be taken up in glory. So we represent the body of Christ. We represent Christ in this world. And we show the glory and the grace of Christ as we live in this world. We reveal Christ to the world. The church is the vehicle God has chosen to take the gospel to every nation. Matthew 28, we looked at last week, 28, 19, and 20. As you're going into all the world, make disciples. Again, plural. As you all are going, you all should make disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul Tripp put it this way, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. And the good news is, you don't have to bring anything to the table. Because everything we would bring to the table is filthy rags. God makes us worthy. God makes us capable. God provides the grace that we need to accomplish this. So you don't have to look at it and say, I don't think I can do any of that. Paul says, no, when you are weak, that's when God's power and strength works through you. Paul says, I'd much rather be weak so that God will work through me than strong and God say, you know what, if I use you, I don't get the glory. And so Paul says, hey, knock out all the props. Take away all the advantage. Give me the thorn in the flesh. Not my will, but your will be done. We proclaim the gospel verbally by speaking it, but also in form, we show the gospel. We demonstrate the gospel. As Paul told the, the Ephesians, that every one of our relationships demonstrates the gospel. The way, we, well, the way we respond when people don't treat us well. When we respond with love, joy, peace, patience. What are we showing? We're showing that the spirit who gives life is changing us and making us into the image of Christ. And we're showing the grace of Christ to them. So we live the gospel as we proclaim the gospel. We demonstrate the message that we are also proclaiming with our lips. And how do we do that better than anything else? Through love. Through love. Two greatest commandments. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the whole Old Testament hangs on that. So that's Old Testament. We don't have to do that now. No. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As you love each other, the world sees Christ in you. As the world sees the unity of the body following after 
Christ's will and not our own, the world sees Christ. One thing that our local congregation does best or should do best is to show non-Christian neighbors that the new life that's made available through Jesus' death on the cross is also for the foundation for a new society. By living the gospel as, dis- as a distinct community, the church accomplishes the important mission of displaying the transforming effects of the gospel for the world to see. Others won't be able to see this larger picture if we remain detached from each other and go in our separate ways. If we continue to do our own individual will, the world does not see this. The angels and demons do not see this. But as a body, as a fellowship, as a family, working together, striving together, we demonstrate not just to angels and demons, but to the world, we show the grace of Jesus Christ. So is the church essential? We can answer that by making it essential to our life. Again, not just being in this building. Not just gathering on Sunday, but being involved in the life of each other throughout the week in order that they see that unity and that love that we have for each other because of Jesus Christ. Are we willing to be a member of the body of Christ? Or do we just want to be a fanny pack? Put, put me on them for a day. Put me on for a couple days. But then eventually set me aside. I'm not really a part of the church. I'm just here some of the time. I'm not actually involved. I'm not actually committed. I'm not actually going to give of myself to this thing. I'm just going to go along for the ride. Is the church essential or is it not? And Jesus says... And Paul says the church is essential, not just outside of the world, but inside the world, to demonstrate Jesus Christ and his glory. So through the local church, we take part in the eternal plan to rescue men and women from sin and see their lives transformed. We're not going to turn there, but Matthew 5, probably a well-known portion where Jesus says, you, plural, are the salt, singular, of the earth. You, plural, are the light, singular, of the world. Let your, plural, light, singular, shine, that your good works will glorify your Father. Salt and light is not something you do as an individual. You do it as part of a group. If we're going to show light into this world of darkness, if we are going to be the salt that slows down the decay and gives flavor to the gospel, he says, we have to do this together. So the church is essential to see men and women rescued from sin and transformed into Christ-likeness. Thirdly, the church is essential for believers. The church is essential for believers. I'm going to go back to Ephesians, but we could go to Romans, we could go to Hebrews, we could go to 1 Thessalonians, we could go to 1 John, we could go to Acts, we could go back to Timothy... Throughout the whole New Testament, we see how the church is essential for believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 is where I'm 
I'm going to rest here. Paul talks about the fact that God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And some of this should sound very familiar with what we read from Colossians last week. So, these gifts that God gives to the church, the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, those gifts were given to do what? To equip all the saints for the work of the ministry. And what does that work accomplish? It builds up the body of Christ. Not the physical human body that's in heaven, but itself on the earth. The church builds the church. Say, wait, Christ said he would build a church. Yes, the tool that he's chosen to use is the church and the Holy Spirit, but the church. And it continues to build until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and other things. But notice, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. This is not an individual race where it's like, okay, I'm going to cross the finish line and then I'll cheer for you and hope that you make it too. No, we are all to cross the finish line together. And if a brother or sister falls, we don't pick them up and carry them and make them dependent on us. We stop and we seek to meet the need that they have. We seek to restore them to usefulness in the body so that they can continue to help build up the rest of the body. We're not in a hurry to cross that finish line. We are bringing each other together. We're working together until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, that we would be mature, perfect, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As we all in the church are, are transformed, conformed into the image of of Christ. Why is this important? Well, verse 14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to know the truth so that we won't fall for error. And so that we can proclaim truth. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is essential for the church. The church is essential for believers. It cultivates the unity of faith and knowledge of Christ causes us to help one another attain spiritual maturity. It guards each other against false teaching and heresy. It promotes fellowship, which is more than just eating a meal. It's sharing every aspect of life. It honors one another. It, out, it outdoes each other in showing honor, in fact. 
It builds one another up and stirs one another to love and good works. It observes and proclaims communion together. It prays with and for each other. It exhorts and instructs one another. It encourages one another. It rebukes one another. It's kind and compassionate to one another. It loves one another and it worships together. The church is essential for believers. The church is essential for the church. If we're going to accomplish what God has called us to do, we have to trust in the means that he has provided. And not just trust in the, "Ah, okay, I guess I will. We should rejoice that he's provided all of this for us. We should rejoice that there's other people who want to help me grow in my spiritual maturity, who wants to guard me against heresy, who desires to fellowship with me, even if that means I'm suffering and they're going to suffer right along with me. To exhort me and instruct me and encourage me and rebuke me when I've done wrong. So that I will one day, along with the rest of the body, achieve that mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That I would be holy and blameless before Christ. So the church is essential. And it's the grace of God that is accomplishing all of this through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the church. And so may his grace reveal to us not only the benefits, but the necessity of his church in our lives. Throughout the world, outside of the world, and in everyday life, the church is essential. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your many gifts to us, not the least of which is a church, a church that will continue to assist you in the process of making and maturing disciples who are becoming like Christ together with each other. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have your viewpoint on the essential nature of the church, not just on Sunday not just a couple times a week, but that we would exhort and encourage and rebuke and pray with and pray for daily our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would guard each other from false teaching, that we would instruct one another as we have been instructed by your word. That we would be kind and compassionate and have fellowship with one another, that we would love one another and seek to worship you effectively with one another. Would you change our will to be as yours? Would you help us to see that the church is essential for Jesus' glory? Amen.